This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. Welcome to Living with Reality, a podcast featuring archived teachings and modern conversations with Dr. Robert Svoboda, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Living with Reality explores Ayurveda and other wisdom traditions of India, which Dr. Svoboda has been studying for nearly 50 years. For more information, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dr. Svoboda. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A. Hello and welcome to Living with Reality. I'm Paula Crossfield, your host and Dr. Svoboda's media manager. On this episode of the podcast, we have part two of a talk that Dr. Svoboda gave in 2018 at the Sanctuary in Costa Rica. This was a talk all about the senses, it really introduced the retreat that he was teaching on. And this one focuses on sight and the fire element, as well as possession. And some of the content goes into a more scientific view, which really mirrors some of the stuff he taught in the Ayurveda and the microbiome courses with Dr. Scott Blossom. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to that first because it will make a lot more sense and enjoy this episode. If you would like to study with Dr. Svoboda, you can go to drsvoboda.teachable.com. That's D-R-S-V-O-B-O-D-A dot teachable.com. And you will find so many courses there with Dr. Svoboda that relate to this material. As I said in the previous podcast as well, you can listen to a previous episode in which I interview Dr. Svoboda and he talks all about possession. And so that's a nice compliment to this material. We hope you enjoy it. We are drawing a distinction between what is a positive possession and what is a negative possession. And of course, there's some possessions that are neither positive nor negative, but are simply the way they are. Um, and it's important to try to have a fluid kind of perspective. Dirsti or darshana, we can call a perspective, spec, introspection, spectacle. It's all about spectacles. It's all about seeing still. Um, it's important to be able to shift your perspective if you want to get a good idea of or if you want to be able to see how things are um, from the perspective of things other than the human. So let us turn our attention back to the early, early, early 
early, early days of life on Earth, billions of years ago, when life first arose in bacterial form, prokaryotes, eukaryotes. But let's just start with that bacteria. And just over this past decade or two, people have started to realize just how important bacteria are. And in fact, that um, gut bacteria not only are important for the gut, but they are doing things to the entire organism all day long. Um, they have a strong influence on what's going on in your brain as well. And what's going on in your brain, as my mentor was always fond of saying, is very much a, an experience of rasa, an experience of, and remember rasa means all kinds of juices, and emotion as well, and tastes, all kinds of things that are related to liquid reality. And all of this is being provided to you by the blood. So your blood, as the blood is circulating, without blood circulating, there is no human being or any other vertebrate for that matter. So all of us are dependent upon, even though we can sit here and be, and be quiet and meditate and be stable, we're able to be stable because the blood is continuously circulating inside of it. It never stops. As soon as it stops, that's the end of you and me. So um, the blood is always circulating, always moving, and it is always bringing whatever is in it into the brain. Yes, there is the blood-brain barrier, but it is permeable. Not everything stays out of the brain. Lots of things get into the brain from the blood. And so how our awareness works is substantially determined by what is in the blood because the blood is delivering nutrients and other stuff to the cells in the brain and it's taking away toxins and other stuff from the cells in the brain. And it has been suggested that one of the important reasons why we need to get adequate sleep, whatever adequate sleep is for you, is that during the period that we sleep, one of the things that happens is that the ventricles in the brain dilate slightly, and the, that allows the cerebrospinal fluid to circulate more effectively in the brain so it can take out a lot of the toxins metabolic toxins that have been produced during the activity of the brain during the time you were awake. So humans are very complicated. Vertebrates are complicated. Uh, all kinds of animals are complicated. Humans are possibly more complicated than a lot of other creatures. But all of us are completely and utterly dependent on bacteria. So it is quite, and just because you have a certain pattern of bacteria in you doesn't mean that you can necessarily change it easily. People think they can take probiotics and that that will alter the way their microbiome works. It doesn't seem to have that much of an effect. And there is some, uh, there is some uh, ev uh, data to suggest that of, for example, after taking antibiotics, it may not be good to take too many probiotics that may actually retard the process of the microbiome coming back to normal. So 
This is just initial data, but it's something that we should have available to us to think about to consider what may be what may be happening and what may be how how we might be able to influence said microbiome. But we could argue, and changing our perspective, what we could argue is that, in fact, all life on Earth has been is has been and is being directed by bacteria for their own convenience. Because really, from one perspective, we are nothing but a big and very complicated and highly opinionated set of chariots for bacteria. We're moving them around. We're sharing them with one another. We're transmitting them from one generation to the next. So this is benefiting the bacteria who also have the same focus as everybody else has, staying alive. The bacteria want to do what every other manifested protoplasmic being wants to do. Find something to eat, avoid being eaten. This is it. There is occasionally you will have to reproduce, yes. If you're a human, you will have to pay taxes, yes. But otherwise, everything has to find things to eat, has to avoid being eaten. This applies to bacteria too. So some bacteria have learned how to work together so that they can manipulate the evolution of everything else on the planet. Now, they have their limitations. Otherwise, the bacteria would be actually running things, which would be a very different, things would be organized very differently if bacteria were running the world. I don't know what it would look like, but it would be very different than what it looks like right now. So fortunately, they have, for us, they have their limitations. But those limitations are limitations from the perspective of them being the most fundamental aspects of life that exist on Earth. And from that fundamental place, they have been and continue to direct in their own way, however imperfectly or perfectly, they have continued to direct and will continue to direct evolution in a particular way. So when we talk about we as human personalities, we are from the beginning possessed by those bacteria because according to what they eat and what they put out, that is all going to be circulating in us to some degree or another, and that's going to be influencing our awareness. And once we get a little bigger than a bacterium, this can happen at a much more dramatic pace. Um, one of the first interesting things I read about when I got to Bombay back in January of 1974. So when I go back to Bombay in February of, 19, of 2019, I will have, that will be, that will mark four, Six, six, 45 years ago, um, <clears throat> which just saying that makes me feel less young. Um, <clears throat> one of the um, first things, interesting things I read about was about a small 
by small, I mean microscopic worm called the lancet, the sheep liver fluke. So there's a little worm that, as its name suggests, lives in sheep livers. And it stays into the sh- in the sheep liver until it is tired of being in the sheep liver. And at that point, it passes out of the sheep liver into the sheep intestine, and with the help of the sheep poop, lands on the ground. And of course, now there is a problem because it has landed on the ground. It is no longer in the sheep. How will it get back to the sheep? And like many of these microscopic worms, it goes through a number of bizarre uh, transformations in its life cycle. So it goes through a transformation or two. While it is being waiting, while it is awaiting being eaten by the special sheep poop eating ants, of which there are sufficient number in the places where there are sheep to have this process continue. And the sheep poop eating ants eat the poop of the sheep and the tiny microscopic worm eggs go into the ants, which as you can imagine, they must be very small if they're getting into the ant. So they go into the intestine of the ant where they grow and a certain number of these microscopic worm uh, transformative forms turn into, undergo a new transformation and they become even tinier and they become what are called brain worms. And the brain worms migrate to the brain of the ant, which as you can imagine is a teeny tiny structure. And they take over the brain of the ant and they start then to drive the ant around as if it was a chariot instead of an ant. So it looks like an ant, but now it is a worm chariot. And these worms cause the ants to climb up to the tips of tall grasses and hover there as if they were mesmerized early in the morning and late in the evening. Because those are the moments that sheep like to come by and eat the tips of tall grasses. So when the sheep eat the tips of the tall grasses, they eat the ants, the ants go into the intestines of the sheep, they come out, they turn into new forms, they migrate to the liver, and they are happy again as little microscopic clams, if clams indeed are happy. So this is only one example of parasitism that takes over another organism and directs it to do whatever it wants to do. There are many examples of this. Cordyceps is a perfect example of this. Every insect, well, maybe not every, but many insects have their own cordyceps species. Cordyceps is a type of fungus. And there are little worms uh, that are going to turn into little, they turn into crickets or they're supposed to turn into whatever they're supposed to turn into, they don't get a chance to do that because while there's still a worm, the fungus comes in and turns the worm into basically a giant fungus. It still looks like a worm, but it's a fungus. And then out of the head of the worm, a fruiting body grows. And that is used very popularly in Chinese medicine. It is so much overused nowadays that there are almost none left in the wild in China. So uh, in the Nepal, and even in our area of the Himalaya, they have people spending all day long 
looking in the grass for these worms that have, and they're extremely expensive now. Just a few of them are worth an ounce of gold. An ounce of gold is worth 1200 bucks nowadays, 1200 US dollars. So there's all kinds of parasitism at this level. And there's parasitism that is probably happening to humans at the microscopic level also that is probably affecting the way they think. It is not utterly clear yet, but just think of toxoplasmosis. How many of you have heard of toxoplasmosis? Toxoplasmosis, see how clever this thing is? It doesn't want people to know what it is or what it's doing. Toxoplasmosis, approximately 50% of the human race is infected with toxoplasmosis. Usually, we don't experience any result from it because we're in, uh, what do they call it, an adventitious host, I think is the word. That means we're not supposed to be a host. It's supposed to be only in mice and cats. And what the toxoplasma does to the mouse is that normally if a mouse smells cat urine, what was a sensible mouse do? It would run into a corner, find a hole, and hide. But if a mouse that is infected with toxoplasma smells cat urine, what it does is come out into the middle of the room and do a little dance, which is pretty much a guarantee that if there is a cat in the neighborhood, that will be curtains for the mouse. So the whole point, as with the sheep liver fluke, is to get now not just an ant, but a mammal to take over the brain of the mammal and make it do something that is highly unwise. Uh, and that's how it gets back into the cat. Now, the question is, what must the toxoplasma be doing to the human being? And the answer is, we don't exactly know, but it has been discovered that the countries that have the greatest percentage of infection with toxoplasma are the ones that tend to win the World Cup. So, speculation has it that these create, that the people infected with toxoplasma are willing to take more risks, willing to go out, willing to be more aggressive, willing to be more attacking the goal, etc. So, the Brazilians, the Argentines, you know, most many Europeans. And so it's possible, therefore, that, you know, the U.S. Soccer Federation should be looking to infect everyone with toxoplasma if they actually want us to be not uh, bombing out at the stage of 16 or worse, as we have. Been. And this is just one species of parasite. If you're interested in learning about more about parasites, there's an excellent book called Parasite Rex by Carl Zimmer. Parasite Rex. And it mentions uh, a factoid that I think is very appropriate for the subject of possession, and that is that, you know, we like to congratulate ourselves on being independent species. We like to think of ourselves as being independent. Four out of every five species, 80% of all species on Earth, are parasites. They are dependent on other species to eat and to house themselves and so on. And so they're innumerable. All right, maybe they're not innumerable since they're in a book. They would be numerable. Hard to numerate examples of all these different 
uh, parasites, including a photo, one of which is one of my favorite photos of a fish whose tongue is eaten away by a particular parasite that then grows into the form of a tongue. And then when you open the mouth of the fish, the only way that you can tell whether the fish has its normal tongue or the parasite tongue is that there are two little eyes on the parasite. <laughs> so it opens its mouth and there's the tongue, but the two little eyes are looking out from the tongue. So my point is, not only that this is a very interesting photo and uh, it's worth taking a look at, but even more that there are parasites everywhere. It should not surprise us if we are all being influenced, not just by bacteria, but by other parasites also. So we should just be aware of that. There are micro, micro, and there, of course there are, I mean, definitely humans have all kinds of parasites that are not even micro, but let's just talk about the micro parasites for a moment. There are micro things. Some of them are uh, like the microbiome. They're positive uh, possessions because they are actually co-evolving with us. And there's some like these toxoplasma and so on that are negative possessions. They are not really interested in, in, in what happens to us. They're not interested in the symbiotic relationship. They just want to use us to continue. So then we have to think about what about those people like, well, like my, uh, my grandmother's cousin, though she was my grandmother's cousin, but we all called her cousin, cousin Effie. Cousin Effie lived in a small house in uh, the small town where my both sets of grandparents live. And uh, she was independently, not exactly wealthy, but well off. She had a uranium mine uh, 40 or 50 miles away. But she also had about 50 cats. And the cats were everywhere. And as you know, how cat people are, they were everywhere. They were on the table. So one has to wonder, since cats are reservoirs of toxoplasma, how much the toxoplasma may be encouraging people who to have more and more cats so that there will be more and more reservoirs of toxoplasma so that the toxoplasma can continue to expand itself in all directions. Inquiring minds want to know. So this is just one example. There could be a lot of other examples, but definitely at the microscopic level, this is something that is quite basic. Um, we can certainly, it certainly seems to be the case that um, everything that we ingest has an effect on our awareness. Um, uh, and is, some of it is, you know, very obvious. And uh, if you eat too many simple carbohydrates, it'll be very difficult for you uh, for uh, to focus because your uh, blood sugar and your um, uh, adrenal hormones and so on will be going like this. So that will promote a certain type of awareness that will not be as useful to you as if your awareness was more consistent and even. But there are all kinds of other ways in which the things we eat are influencing us. So we can be... Um, we are all being possessed by, uh, and po sometimes positively and sometimes negatively, by 
elements other than the hydrocarbons that make up most of our organisms. So mostly we're made up of carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, some nitrogen, some sulfur. But there are lots of metals that are involved. So without iron, we wouldn't get very far because that provides hemoglobin that transfers oxygen to all the different parts of the body that allows us to actually create energy in those parts of the body. And if we did not have, uh, and so iron is important for that. If, uh, and the hemoglobin molecule is almost identical to chlorophyll, except that the central molecule in chlorophyll is manganese. It's either manganese or magnesium. I'm pretty sure it's manganese. Magnesium. Magnesium. Okay. Magnesium. Uh, and, uh, of course, we know that calcium is important, but calcium is always being, there's always a possibility that calcium could be replaced by strontium, which may or may not be useful. Sometimes a little bit of strontium may make your bones stronger, like a little bit of fluoride, fluorine may make your teeth stronger. A lot of fluorine will make your teeth and your bones uh, weaker. So it's there's always a matter of uh, getting the right amount of each of these things that are being part of what is making us up. And sometimes we can be possessed by uh, a person who, for whatever reason, has too much iron, may, uh, uh, and we're speculating, we meaning I, I'm speculating here, but iron is the... Uh, metal for which planet? Saturn. So iron being the metal for Saturn, it's quite possible that too much iron or insufficient iron may influence a the way in which Saturn can influence you. We're just speculating, you know, but it's good to have different. And remember the word speculate is coming from perspective and spectacle and what have you. And of course, then there are other metals that definitely are not so good, like aluminum. You don't really want to have a lot of aluminum. And we know that in Alzheimer's, there tends to be a lot of aluminum connected into the brain. And we have to ask ourselves how much of that is coming from aluminum-based antiperspirants, because that aluminum chlorhydrate is a fine powder. And as your uh, as you get hot, that powder will tend to sublime, tend to turn into a gaseous kind of thing that you are then inhaling. And of course, as you know, anything you inhale goes directly into your brain. We're speculating, but we're thinking that probably putting aluminum that near your head is not so good. We know that lead is dangerous and mercury is dangerous and so on. And we also know that all of these things, lead especially, has a definite effect on your awareness. And um, the Romans were probably a good example or good, of course, a bad example of this because they used to, they had a, you know, water systems, but they, their water flowed in lead pipes. So the water was probably not pH neutral. A lot of it was probably um, high or low enough in pH that it would scavenge some of the lead from the pipe. And if that were not enough, they sweetened their wine with lead acetate. So that means they were actively 
drinking lead. And if you were a rich Roman, you drank more wine, which means you were drinking more lead. And one of the characteristics of lead poisoning is emotional lability. That means you can be smiling brightly, and within a few seconds, you can be in a torrential rage. Your emotions shift very quickly. And um, so it would be interesting to speculate, we're speculating again, respecting, we're inspecting, uh, how much that influenced the way that the Romans not only saw what they were, who they were and what they were doing, but how things developed in the empire. So bacteria possesses, metals possesses for good or not so good, other elements that are not even metals, phosphorus, everything. There's so many essential elements in the body. Arsenic is an essential element. Though there's arsenic in so much stuff that nobody ever has arsenic deficiency. But as we all know, too much arsenic. Um, and now we know that sometimes rice can carry a lot of arsenic. Too much arsenic can be not so good. It can be carcinogenic. Of course, for certain cancers, arsenic is a good treatment. So many, many substances, many actions, many, many things in the world are dose sensitive time sensitive according to whether they're going to have a beneficial effect or a non-beneficial effect. So we're just thinking about the possible things that can possess us first on the physical level. It's on the physical level, pretty much anything. You can be taken over by, and we see people uh, taken over by alcohol regularly. There are all kinds of different poisons that take people over and um, start to drive them around like little ants or mice or whatever. And this is why my mentor who liked to drink scotch always said, if you're drinking, and he meant if that if you're taking any other substance or performing any other action, you always need to know whether you're drinking it or it's drinking you. So this is a very basic principle. Anything you consume should be you consuming it. It should not be it consuming you. You should not be lying on your back thinking about how long it's going to be before you can have your next cup of coffee or tea or mate or cocoa or, uh, or if you're doing uh, auto urine therapy, urine or whatever it may be, anything it is, anything that becomes more important to you than everything else is something that now has control over you. Taken possession of you. So um, it becomes an upada. It becomes a secondary foundation. Our foundation should be the earth element. Our foundation should be the prana. Our foundation should be the fire. But it's very easy, especially nowadays, to be taken over by different things, including especially the screen. Nowadays, if we're talking about what is most likely to take people over, that would be the screen. And we find that many people simply cannot do without the screens, and they have uh, withdrawal symptoms when the screen is taken away. And there are now 
at least in Korea, I don't know, in other places, there are special camps where teenagers who are addicted to the internet are taken and disconnected for a few days from the internet. And, ret- and so they can be exposed to things like the forest, for example, something that is not in the fake astral world that is being generated by the internet. So this is an example of something that is, and it was bad enough, you know, just to have like TV. I personally am glad that I grew up in a time when we only had three channels and there was a test pattern a test pattern that when I was a teenager at certain moments, I probably watched for quite a long time (laughs) because that was the only thing that was available to watch. But at least there was a period of time during every day when you could do nothing, there was nothing you could watch except the test pattern. That's not the case anymore. Now it's everything all the time, everywhere. And some people, many people, simply can't withstand that and they're taken over by it and they're consumed by it and their prana is sucked into it. So now the prana of just from the people who are on Facebook, one third of the population of the earth, 2.3 billion people are on Facebook. So 2.3 billion people are putting their prana into this one fake astral dimension, loka, And that's being managed by the creator God, Zuck. (laughs) Now, we don't so far have people bowing down to Zuck, all hail the mighty Zuck. (laughs) And who knows how long he will be the creator God. He suddenly has fallen upon hard times. And uh, things go up and down a lot faster than they used to because things are much faster. But... There are many creator gods. There are many new creations. Lots of things are happening. Facebook will eventually disappear, but don't worry. There's Instagram, WhatsApp, and Snapchat all moving in that direction. And new things will show up as more and more people get wired in and their prawn demands more things to keep them attended, attended to. And that's just the fake astral world. That doesn't count all the gods, goddesses, hemigods, demigods, semigods, dead humans, other dead things, things that have never been alive, nature spirits, things that are simply concatenations of prawn due to the geo, the, the geology or the, uh, of a certain area that behave like they're alive in the same way that hurricanes and tornadoes behave like they're alive. Sometimes you can have an astral hurricane or tornado that just happens to take you over. And unfortunately, if you're in the neighborhood of it, and you're taken over by it, then getting rid of it may be very difficult because it may be able to set up a pattern inside yourself that, that you, unless you know how to, dis, to disperse it, you may have great difficulty dispersing. So there's all kinds of astral things that you can be um, obstructed by or possessed by or taken over by, but especially your ancestors, which is why the Indian uh, tradition in general, and my mentor in particular, used to emphasize emphatically and repeatedly how important it is to keep doing things to keep your ancestors 
calm. And unless they were, unless they were saintly beings who had definitely, you know, uh, were altruistic and only had the, the, uh, benefit of their descendants at heart. Um, otherwise you can be sure that all those ancestors left something behind that they wanted or left behind something that they didn't have that they wanted. And they still are attentive to the possibilities of connecting to that. And how are they going to do that? They'll be connecting to that via you. Wait, you will say. They probably have been um, reborn. Well, which is true. But just because they've been reborn doesn't mean that necessarily all parts of them were being reborn. It's very quite possible that some of them got reborn, but some of a part of them that was not willing to, that was, didn't want things to be any different than it was before and wanted everything to go back the way it was before will cause them, part of them, to continue want, wanting to be connected to their descendants so that, because that's an easy way to, that's an easy thing to possess. Your descendant is because your descendant is using some of that pattern of, um, uh, genetic material that you were using. So, and of course, let's not forget that some societies actively expect this. There are some societies that actively expect that your grandfather should be reborn as you. And they actively encourage that to happen. Um, it, in the, from the Indian perspective of things, that is not so much encouraged encouraged because of the limitations of number one, your ancestors, and number two, the limitations of the human personality itself. We're, we're interested in doing something a little better than the human personality, which is going to be much more difficult to do if we're only getting the same personality. Yes, that personality will be learning useful things and becoming more adept at whatever the uh, environment of the family and clan is. But still, that's not necessarily and highly unlikely, really, to be facilitating a connection between this world and the more expansive parts of the astral world, not just the ancestral parts of the astral world. So ancestors are an important aspect of the way things go. And, of course, the... Um, Not the entire, but an an, a, a sizable plurality of the ancestral influence comes from the father's side of things. The mother is very important, but the mother is much more important from the perspective of creating the physical organism of the individual. And there is one egg, but there's tens of millions of sperm, and each one of those has a different permutation, slightly different permutation of the genetic material which allows a slightly different aspect of the various different ancestors in whatever the jiva happens to be that's going to be able to uh, connect with the ovum and actually generate a zygote. So there's a, a plurality of influence from the mother's side on the physical organism. The baby has to grow in the mother for nine months after all, and then we hope is going to be almost solely with the mother for at least another several weeks or months thereafter, and living off of her juice, her own uh, milk. And a plurality, because of this 
multiplicity of different possibilities that happen in the sperm, plurality of the astral influence comes through the father. So uh, we definitely pay attention to all of the ancestors, especially if on the mother's side there was somebody particularly good or particularly bad. But uh, at least in India, when you are doing ancestral worship, you pay more attention to the father's side of things because you want to have more influence on this large number of astral realities that are all competing for attention by your DNA. And it is for this reason that psychology, and this is a, you know, we had to have a word, the, the Indian, the Ayurvedic, the branch, Ayurveda has eight, eight branches, the branch that deals with the mind, etc., is called Bhuta Vidya. Vidya means knowledge. Veda Vidya, same root. Bhuta is the past participle of the verb bhu, which means to become. So Bhuta means has become. Something that has already become. Something that has already been developed. Already been expanded. Already been dealt with. Bhuta Vidya. So it's talking about things from the past, like the ancestors, for example. Like all the other things that possess us, like language. Language is also a possession. Every language has its own flavor. Every language has its own. And often, I can't always do this, but you can often tell if not what language, what family of language peoples a person speaks by the way they hold their mouth. Because every language has, I think they call it a central vowel. And that central vowel is the vowel that you most speak. And that vowel helps to determine the way that it, your, your mouth, because you're learning language from a very early age, that is causing your mouth to grow in a particular way. Um, and so, um, you, there, there are very slight differences between people, for example, who speak, uh, classical romance languages, Spanish, Italian, French, and, um, people who speak something like English, for whom the central vowel is something that is very, a very non-pure vowel, probably a schwa, probably, eh, or, uh, or something. Mm-hmm. I forget, but we have the internet, so we can find, uh, we can find it out easily enough. So language is literally possessing us in that way, but it's also possess- uh, the, the meanings of different words, uh, the intonations, every language has a certain, some languages are more guttural, uh, German guttural language. So that has a more, a greater effect on the, uh, it's pronounced uh, chief, uh, a lot with the throat and the throat, those five vowels are connected to Mars. So there's a certain Martian effect in the German language that is just the nature of the language. Forget everybody else, uh, forget everything else about Germans and Germany. Just the German language is going to have a basically Martian effect on everybody who speaks it. 
Now, this could be good or could be bad, but it's a Martian effect. The other languages will have an effect. The chas and juz will have a Venusian effect. The, uh, Sanskrit, of course, has four T's and four D's. The, re- the retroflex or tuz and does have more of a mercurial effect. The dental tuz and does Jupiter and the puh and ma and buh, Saturn. So this is only one effect. There are many other effects. And just because something is guttural doesn't mean you can't be uh, very uh, Venusian or Joven or Saturnian. It just means that there, there's a basic influence there. And then there's a basic influence according to how the language itself has developed and the way that the uh, words are used and the syntax. All of the aspects of the language are influencing. And this is why um, uh, you had... Um, it was very much the case in the past generally, and it's still the case in many places, that you always weren't learn more than one language. So that you will... And uh, you will always have your mother tongue. And there's some reason to believe that your mother tongue takes up the main territory in your head, in your brain for language. And there is a smaller territory for every language that is not your mother tongue, which is why if you uh, speak another couple of languages, it will sometimes take a lot of time to shift from one of those to another one of those rather than to shift back and forth from your mother language because you're having to shift inside the same territory instead of having a single dedicated territory. So language. Another thing that, I mean, obviously there are, obviously there are things that, um, uh, are, well, there's a lot to be said about language, but just language is one thing. It's, it's, it's also an extremely human thing. Other species do communicate with one another, even plants communicate with one another. But we've taken communication to a much more complex and detailed level, so far as we can tell, than other things have. And, of course, we have, uh, in addition to uh, ordinary language, we have taken over, we've created symbols. So it's one thing to communicate directly, but it's another thing to communicate this way. This is, and, of course, in a certain sense, other species use this too. Dogs mark their territory, for example, with urine. And that is that smell, those the 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 detailed nature of that smell is very meaningful to the dog. The dog can smell that and tell what is actually happening. But that's still not and, and in a way, kind of sort of almost that's a symbol. It's not precisely a symbol, because it is not something that is completely abstracted from the physical reality of the animal. 
but it's sort of symbolic. It represents the entire animal. So symbolism is something that other species use, but we've developed symbolism much further and we have untethered it from, uh, or we have substantially untethered it from the physical reality. We still require the eyes in order to read it. If you're reading Braille, you still require the sense of touch. So there still has to be an input of things. But the, and the screen, and we can, we've gone, we're going further and further away from the physical reality. And it becomes, the further that happens, the easier it is for things to take us over because we have less ability than to test with our intuition, which is the way we thought for many, many, many millennia before we started thinking emotionally and then before we started thinking rationally, which is very, very recent. So, um, almost anything can possess you. Uh, you can be possessed by any emotion. Diseases have their own uh, uh, ways of influencing your perception. We say in English, you are looking at something with a jaundiced eye. So when you have jaundice that definitely, or hepatitis, that definitely changes the way you think. And um, one factoid I'm fond of mentioning is that a person who has severe cirrhosis of the liver, who eats even one ounce of red meat, will go into a coma. Because when that meat is uh, metabolized, it meat is made out of um, fibers of muscle. Muscle is made out of protein. Protein is a polypeptide. Peptides are made out of amino acids. Amino acids are acids that have an amino group, NH2, associated with them. A large number of neurotransmitters in the body are monoamines. When uh, protein is metabolized, especially uh, protein from animal flesh, a number of monoamines are produced that are that look like neurotransmitters but don't actually transmit anything. They are appropriately called fake neurotransmitters. So, like octopamine, which has a good sound to it. It's like an octopus, but inside your system, octopizing. So it, you're, the job, one of the jobs of your liver is to get rid of these things so they will not interfere with the job of the neurotransmitters. But if your liver is not working, then these things flood your awareness and the neurotransmitters can't connect to the things they're supposed to be transmitting. And then your system shuts down the part of you that is inessential, which is your conscious mind. Because your, rash, your reptile brain, you know, it doesn't mind your conscious mind. It would prefer that it doesn't get involved with taking care of the organism in the way that it needs to be taken care of, which the reptile brain specializes in. But if the conscious mind starts to become kind of screwy, it's useful from the reptile brain point of view of just shutting it down so that the organism can continue to exist without being disturbed by the conscious mind. 
So again, possession by the reptile brain, in this case, um, potentially useful. But my point in this is not that most people don't have severe cirrhosis of the liver, but a large number of people nowadays have very imperfectly functioning livers. And many of them like to eat uh, meat-like products coming from fast-like food producers. And we can only imagine what kind of neurotransmitters are actually reaching what kind of synapses. And then we're not terribly surprised that they believe what they believe, even if it has nothing to do with reality, because they're not living in this reality. They're living in a reality that is being generated by their diets. They're living in a reality that's being generated by all of the different chemicals, all the endocrine disruptors, all of the xenoestrogens and things that are also possessing us from all the plastics we're using and all the pollutants that are out there. So, if there is anything out there, and of course, we haven't even talked about actions, but people can easily be taken over by actions also. OCD is a kind of being overpossessed by a kind of activity that forces you to behave in a particular way, whether you want to or not. People who get addicted to exercise, the exercise acts as any kind of addiction of any sort to anything is a possession. So on that note, we will um, breathe gently, easily and deeply so that we can be repossessed by prana, a positive possession. When in doubt, always return to your breathing or return to the fire or return to the sound of running water in the river and what have you. That doesn't necessarily mean jump into the river, especially if the river is not deep enough to jump into. That would be an unwise use of that particular element. We always want to use we want to employ wise use policies, no matter what it is we may be connecting ourselves to. So again, close your eyes for a moment, breathing slowly and deeply. Visualize the center of the earth. Visualize yourself as the mountain, your favorite mountain. Be possessed by it for a moment. Breathing slowly, regularly, deeply. And just for a moment, let's allow ourselves to be possessed by the quality of slowness. So, just uh, follow along with me. Shiva, 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 Shambho.
Shiva, 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 Shambho. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.